This is your host, Dean Kernut, and welcome to the 100th episode of the Alpha Exchange. Over the next hour, we'll do a podcast retrospective, looking back at some of the themes and insights shared over the past four years. First, I want to thank you for listening. We've been fortunate to attract a substantial audience of accomplished professionals, and that's really the result of the quality of our guests. I want to express sincere gratitude to our guests for taking me up on the invite to come on our show. A little bit of background before we get underway. About this time, four years ago, I thought about launching a podcast. I'd started listening to podcasts myself, mostly market-focused, and thought I was getting a lot out of them. Instead of the necessarily quick hit and sound bites that generally emerge from listening to CNBC or Bloomberg, I found the podcast, when well done, to allow the guest to share his or her framework and to give the listener a chance to think carefully about the insights offered. I felt I was in a good position to create something unique, and ultimately, the Alpha Exchange is part of my own search for answers in this very humbling sport we call high finance. Having listened to Capital Allocator's podcasts, I was lucky enough to stumble across a tweet from Ted Seides thanking his editor, the podcast editor, Matthew Passy. With Matthew's guidance, we bought some equipment, registered with the various podcast hosting centers, secured some opening music, found a name, created some artwork, and were quickly up and running. Four years after our first episode in 2018, we've reached number 100. What I've sought to do through these discussions is to make a contribution to our industry's understanding of risk. That literally is the alpha that I hope emerges from the exchange. One way we do this is by looking backwards, reviewing consequential periods of market disruption. There's an old saying that, quote, history is a foreign country. If that's the case, I say that the history of risk is on another planet. We learn the most by studying the periods when things go horribly wrong. But a human condition and weakness is simply that we forget. Risk management suffers from a failure of the imagination. In discussing the events, then, my hope is to raise the antenna of our listeners, perhaps planting a seed for further investigation or alerting you to a vulnerability previously unappreciated. My own skill set is in derivatives and in trying to use optionality effectively to either take or reduce risk. You'll hear a lot about terms like convexity and skew and correlation in these discussions. We talk a lot about monetary policy, price signals, inflation, and market liquidity. But ultimately, I come back to some version of the same question. Where can capital be allocated, both offensively and defensively, to achieve better risk-adjusted returns? So let's get into it and do some review. Along the way, as we survey some of the insights from our guests, I'll seek to tie things cohesively together. We got off the ground quickly in November of 18 with Chris Cole of Artemis Capital. I've gotten a lot out of Chris's framework for the ecosystem of short volatility in markets. We were fresh off the XIV event from Feb 18, something that remains one of the most spectacular product implosions in modern markets. Recall the 2017 precursor to this Feb 18 blowup was unbelievably a year in which the VIX spent more than 50 days below 10 and realized volatility on the S&P was a paltry 6.7%. It was a year in which the sharp ratio of every short vol strategy was unsustainably high. Here's what Chris said. Volatility has been elevated from a statistic to a player on the field. Volatility is no longer describing the game. The price of volatility has become an input into the very models that are being used to sell the volatility. So volatility is no longer just a statistic measuring the game on the field. It is actually a player on the field impacting the game. Much more on this to come back to along the way as a consistent theme throughout the podcast discussions is the interaction between market prices and the incentive structure those prices impose on investors. I like to say that winning trades attract interest, sponsorship, and capital. And no trade was more, quote, winning than Bernie Madoff's split strike conversion trade. As the Alpha Exchange was underway, December 18 was approaching, and so too was the anniversary of the uncovering of the Madoff fraud. I will not forget being on a train in December of 2008, amidst the financial crisis and seeing the Bloomberg headline. Only one word came to mind immediately, Markopolis. I had met Harry years earlier in 2002 for a meeting in Boston to discuss variant swaps. On my way out, he turned to me and said, you ever heard of Madoff? I said, yes, I have. He said, it's a Ponzi scheme. Well, he may be skimming from the market making business. He paused for a second and said, no, it's a fraud. I know it. On the Alpha Exchange, he said this. I knew it had to be a Ponzi because his returns were basically up at a 45 degree angle 
and we don't have 45 degree angles in finance. They exist in trigonometry and geometry. They might exist in physics, but not in finance. We don't get 45 degree return lines. And while Madoff is a tragic episode of outright fraud, there are significant corollaries to how the beliefs of market participants are shaped by what we observe. In fact, there's a story about a hedge fund manager being in the back of an Uber and receiving a stock tip from the driver on this great new company called the XIV, making strong returns in 2017. The hedge fund manager, alarmed, said, mate, that's not a company. It doesn't have people or earnings. It's a computer program. This VIX ETN blowup was fascinating in so many ways, and the manner in which carry trades can sow the seeds of their own demise is certainly relevant here. Mike Green, the chief strategist at Simplify Asset Management, said this. I think the size of XIV and related strategies had grown to a point that the analysis I was doing as I constructed my trades around that event, I actually was referencing back, and I literally went back and read Paul Tudor Jones' letters to investors as he was predicting the crash of 87. He was extremely focused on market structure. Right? He was very focused on the nascent liquidity of the futures markets and the evolution of this thing called portfolio insurance and how under certain conditions that had a reasonably high probability of occurring that the demand for the liquidity from the futures market was going to overwhelm the available supply. That's what really the Volmageddon event was about. The systematic mechanism in which XIV at the size of about two and a half billion and a related product SVXY, which I think is about a billion and a half, the size that those had gotten to required them to transact in a size that was basically 3x what would have been available on the futures market. For me, volatility has always been the most anti-fragile, but also the most reflexive asset class. And in talking with many folks during the low vol period of 2017, it was clear that the carry being generated by being short vol was really difficult to walk away from, even after acknowledging concerns of how low the VIX was. Vineer Bansali, founder and CIO of Longtail Alpha, put it this way. So there's a lot of suppliers of insurance, and this will tie very well into our, our you know, volatility discussion in a second. That can suppress the price of insurance. If the price of insurance is very low, that can lead to suboptimal construction that can lead to people taking more risks and, you know, building in areas or, you know, underwriting projects that may or may not, you know, be able to survive a large hurricane. So it's not the fact that the hurricanes themselves are predicted by catastrophic insurance selling, but it is the fact that the total amount of damage caused does react somewhat, maybe to a large degree, to a lot of supply of insurance, even in that market. The point is that when markets become accident-free, the competitive forces to sell accident insurance take underwriting standards into looser and riskier territory. A case in point is that from the middle of 2003 to early 2007, there wasn't a single day when the S&P 500 experienced a 2% move, either up or down. Over that period, the VIX would descend below 10 and credit spreads would narrow to the lowest levels we've ever seen. Reflecting on these skinny levels of pre-crisis risk premia, John Haveis, the founder of DGV Solutions, said this. We spent a lot of time looking at the highly leveraged financials, and some of it was a product of self-preservation. You'd look at your counterparties, and at the same time, the credit protection got cheaper and cheaper. So I remember buying, we were buying huge amounts of Citigroup subordinated protection for 10 basis points a year. You could buy $100 million of protection and it wouldn't cost you very much to carry. And we bought a lot of that. The policymaker misread of these diminutive option prices in late 2006 was epic. Central bankers and IMF types believed they'd conquered the business cycle, facilitated by bona fide financial innovation, and brought with it the great moderation. Tim Geithner, then president of the New York Fed, said this in 2006. The changes now underway are most dramatic in the rapid growth in instruments for risk transfer and risk management, the increased role played by non-bank financial institutions in capital markets around the world, and the much greater integration of national financial systems. These developments provide substantial benefits to the financial system. Financial institutions are able to measure and manage risk much more effectively Risks are spread more widely across a more diverse group of financial intermediaries within and across country, 
These changes have contributed to a substantial improvement in the financial strength of the core financial intermediaries and in the overall flexibility and resilience of the financial system in the United States. This sounds powerful, but the causality was all wrong. Low readings on risk spreads and implied vol resulted from the overwhelming supply of volatility in all its forms into a market that had remained accident-free for too long. In reflecting on the setup going into the GFC, Ben Melkman, the founder and CIO of Light Sky Macro, said this. So I think on the first one, by definition, there's a survivorship bias, as in subprime insurance, general credit protection in that period, 05, 06, 07, was unbelievably cheap due to the amount of leverage being put into the system, financial engineering at that time. And almost by definition, there has never been as extreme a trade since in terms of what was the cost of that insurance to what was the payout. It's so fascinating to look back on the financial crisis because of how incongruous and low the price of risk was relative to the actual risks that we're building system-wide. The very same factors that were causing vol to clear at such low levels were the same factors contributing to systemic risk. These risks were, quote, highly quantified by models with strange names like Gaussian copula. I can recall my own time running derivative sales at a bank in 2006, visiting the London office and waiting for the desk's credit derivative Greeks to be recalculated. 45 minutes later, we had an idea as to what the risks were 45 minutes ago. Modeling is another theme throughout the Alpha Exchange discussions. The language of Black Shoals is everywhere in modern markets. So too is the concept of value at risk. In order for both of these to work, we need two things. First, we need the market to work. In the world of modeling, liquidity is assumed to be always there. It's obviously not the case. My portfolio is more liquid than I thought it was, said no one amidst a market vol event. Second, our assumptions about the behavior of asset price movements needs to bear resemblance to the real thing. Here's how Rob Bogutsky, global head of trading at Galaxy Digital, put it. In economics, we try to apply the forces of nature to economics, and we try to apply the laws that we think truly exist. But those laws break down when you're dealing with things like human behavior, you're dealing with the dynamic of risk and greed exchanging places in people's minds. And as the old adage goes, a bachelor's degree in crowd psychology at certain points is worth far more than a PhD in economics. Perhaps the largest modeling blunder of all time was the LTCM debacle. The rigorous stress testing exercises run by this most highly qualified team patently underestimated the risks, mostly because they failed to account for their own enormous presence in all of the copycat capital that went the same way. A favorite quote of mine comes from Victor Hagani, one of long-term capital's partners. In the aftermath of the portfolio's demise, he said this, the hurricane is not more or less likely to hit because more hurricane insurance has been written. In the financial markets, this is not true. The more people write financial insurance, the more likely it is that a disaster will happen because the people who know you have sold the insurance can make it happen. So you have to monitor what other people are doing. I asked Victor to reflect on this during an Alpha Exchange podcast. This is what he said. I think that the prices of all financial assets have this sort of feedback loop that you get with people extrapolating out into the future, recent performance, people hitting stop losses. So the market goes down and that causes it to go down further. So I guess in some ways, what's interesting is not that the, I mean, it's interesting that the feedback loops exist and more specifically, even the feedback loops exist in a way that tends to create momentum in different things. And related more specifically to the LTCM experience, I think that one of the observations that have come following that is that sort of the more closely related two things are, then I think that the more fat-tailed is the risk that you get out of them. I covered LTCM back in the mid-90s, doing my share of long-dated equity vol, risk-arb financing, and European switch trades like Royal Dutch Shell and Unilever. One of the favorite trades was what we called the flexible equity swap, which packaged a Delta One long-short swap with an option written by LTCM 
to be put into more of the same long short swap at a out of the money strike price. One can imagine a scenario in which the dealer's own hedging activity mutes the same spread volatility that they need in order to monetize the option, especially at the sizes that LTCM was transacting in. The LTCM unwind was personally very formative for me. Once set in motion, the size of the portfolio and the nature of the risks within it made it impossible to successfully unwind. The liquidity available in the market relative to what needed to be put through the market were miles apart. Ultimately, this is a solid starting point to understand how vol events materialize. The market realizes that the state of the world it thought was correct is actually unsustainable. The position that built up as a function of that worldview, especially when leverage is involved, gets forcibly unwound. Many will recall from books on LTCM, like When Genius Failed, that the first tremor experienced by the portfolio was in 1997 at the onset of the Asian financial crisis. Another fascinating risk episode in which overwhelming capital flows suppressed the price of risk and served as an enabler. Here's what Mike Novogratz, the founder of Galaxy Digital, said about the Asian financial crisis. The thing about the Asian crisis that we learned was that when leverage gets built up in a giant way and it unwinds, if it gets beyond the first fire break, it unwinds at a pace that it wants to. And so you have this fantastic deleveraging ugly, brutal deleveraging that destroys value and way overdoes things. And so if you look at the Indonesian rupiah, there were tons and tons of Japanese banks that had lent to Indonesian corporates against that dollar peg. So everyone had borrowed in dollars. And when all of a sudden their local currency started depreciating, they had to pay much more expensive dollars back and they couldn't do it. They had these huge wipeouts. Often the banks took the brunt of the losses. Banks then get recapitalized by their home sovereign central banks. So that was a lesson I learned. We don't see FX crisis events to the extent we used to, but there have been some meaningful episodes along the way. Nothing is more destabilizing to the citizens of a country than watching the money blow up. Tanya Reef, a PhD in economics and the founder of Senda Capital, said this. I think the classical scenario for an emerging market that would experience one of these big currency crises, you would have an emerging market that had a fixed exchange rate or a peg, a crawling peg or something of the sort. And they were conducting at the same time very loose fiscal and monetary policy. So over time, what that ended up meaning is that the economy was overstimulated. And that would actually mean that the current account started widening and the exchange rate, the real exchange rate, became overvalued so that the country was no longer that competitive. So their exports were not growing as fast as their imports are growing. And the growth was very dependent in external financing to come and, and sustain that current account. When these crisis events are large enough, they require government and policy action. How else to arrest the market from a state of contagion? Financial firefighting is a lot of things. Having the tools, the capital, and the will to overwhelm the flames are all requirements. What are the trade-offs in doing too much or too little? Eric Peters, founder of One River Asset Management, shared this during a podcast episode. I think the 90s was that period where you had these crises and you had everyone begin to adopt reasonably similar responses and they became more and more powerful through time. And I think policymakers were probably believing that they were becoming more intelligent about how to, to manage markets. The playbook Eric refers to seems to be some version of policymakers using public capital to allow the market to exit bad positions below cost. Financial firefighting came to be about selling vol for free to the market in an effort to restore market functioning. The scorecard of whether the crisis response was working has simply been an affirmative answer to the question, is vol going down? John Succo, who ran Long Vol Fund Vices Capital, put it this way. Volatility is kind of like the antithesis of liquidity. So volatility goes down as liquidity comes into the market. And when a crash happens, liquidity gets yanked out of the market. Correlations go straight up and markets go down and volatility goes sky high because everybody's trying to get out at the same time because basically... With debt creation and low volatility, people take too much risk. So they buy way too many risky assets. 
these periods of risk on and risk off tend to be curious cousins. Beware the quiet is a mantra for the Minsky-minded risk manager. A powerful quote from Hyman Minsky was that, quote, stability leads to instability. The more stable things become and the longer things are stable, the more unstable they will be when the crisis hits. In a similar and perhaps more philosophical light, Minsky also said that, quote, success breeds a disregard for the possibility of failure. In this short sentence, we glean so much about how our tendencies create market vulnerabilities. In this, we see LTCM. We see the tech bubble, the XIV event, and the breakdown of the 60-40 portfolio. Our policymakers suffer from this same shortcoming, badly missing the tidal wave of systemic risk building in 2006 and early 2007, and more recently failing to appreciate the non-transitory nature of inflation. As I engaged guests on the Alpha Exchange on their risk management frameworks, I sought to solicit their bird's eye view on various crisis events. With respect to the big ones, nothing compares, at least on a one-day basis, to the 1987 stock market crash. Several of our guests were there for it. Few events compared to the liquidity vacuum that was the 87 crash. In many ways, this is the original and the most violent episode in which the collective actions of price agnostic agents, the portfolio insurers, created a giant supply-demand imbalance. About October 19, 1987, Dave Rogers, the founder of JD Capital Management, said this. One of the most interesting things about that whole event is that it really introduced skew to the world. No one really understood option pricing. There was a model, of course, Black-Scholes and, and other models, but no one really understood how they were fully being applied or how you could apply them. No one really understood what the what the concept of, of using different volatilities for different strikes or for different maturities, for that matter. As Dave points to, it took the materialization of a seminal, dangerous event in markets to inform participants about the real-world probabilities of tail events and how they were very different from the statistical probability implied by the normal distribution. Scott Ladner, the CIO of Horizon Funds, said this. The standard Black-Scholes thing of, of continuous prices, that doesn't work with biotech stocks. It didn't work in the, in the late 90s with internet stocks because things just gapped. And discontinuity, discontinuity prices was the norm, not the exception. And so models that assumed that there were continuous prices were going to give you bad Greeks, they're going to give you bad risk numbers. And so there's a little bit of art that goes into managing portfolios like that as well. And just some healthy skepticism about the math. We don't deal in as, as much as kind of the math would make you think, but we don't deal in natural sciences here. We deal in these are, these are not natural laws. These things are not immutable and the world can change. As Scott says, these models may be well constructed and are a good starting point for valuation, but they are not immutable. He says, quote, the world can change. And there's a number of directions I want to take this and bring in some conversations with other Alpha Exchange guests. First, on this notion of change, Rick Bookstaber, founder of Fabric IQ, said this. In each event that you mentioned, the market post that event was different than it was before that event for two reasons. One is the markets changed in part because of regulation, in part because new instruments came about to try to buttress people against that similar event, and also because people learn from experience. So we're not going to have another 2008. We may have really bad things happen, but it's not going to be that again. The playbook seems to be, we have a crisis event, we learn something new, regulatory or central bank action is taken, the incentive structure for investors is altered, a new set of risk prices emerges, and we move forward. There is a learning experience that comes through time. It's very different from what happens in physical sciences. One of the observations worth discussion is the entanglement of central banks and markets. In 1987, a seismic market crash brought about Fed easing and a prosaic statement about being ready to support market functioning. 11 years later, as the LTCM portfolio imploded, the New York Fed brokered a sale in which the hedge funds counterparties supplied backstop capital. 11 years after that, in 2009, the Fed began purchasing treasury securities, launching a near semi-permanent policy of QE. And 11 years later, in 2020, the Fed did QE in, quote, an amount as necessary and brought in corporate bond QE, buying its first 
corporate bonds. Jim Grant likes to say that the Fed cannot be both the arsonist and firefighter at the same time. Evaluating market prices becomes difficult when there is so much price in different capital impacting clearing levels. Former FOMC Governor Kevin Morse said this. I wish these prices were helping inform policymakers about what's around the corner, what's over the hill. But because of the participation of governments in these markets, which again, in dark times, I understand, I appreciate, and I think sometimes unavoidable, but because, I'd say, mistaken lessons learned from things like the taper tantrum, market participants see governments that are only moving in one direction in their participation in these markets. So markets, I think, are instead of using these prices or being informed by these prices and telling us something about secular stagnation or growth or inflation. Kevin's cautionary tales here on the degree to which the Fed and other central banks have become such powerful forces in markets is a subset of a broader discussion. How do we model and extract signals from prices when these very prices are so influenced by participants in markets? Lindsay Politi, the head of inflation strategies at One River Asset Management, pointed to the impact of the Fed's presence in the mortgage market, saying, I think there are a couple of things that are different about the markets now than at the beginning of my career that will probably make a bit of a comeback once central banks exit more seriously. The first one is the negative convexity of the market with the Federal Reserve holding so much of the mortgage market in the U.S. and not delta hedging that exposure. Ray Iwanowski, the co-founder of Secor Asset Management, said this. I think many quant models at the time and even now, assume pricing is exogenous, meaning you observe market prices and then you act on those observed set of market prices where, you know, a lot of times, especially if you're sizable or fast forward 10 years, especially if you're in the same, doing the same things as others, is pricing becomes endogenous. As you try to trade, you're moving prices in a direction against you. And then that's sort of your classic liquidity spiral where, you know, things can go horribly wrong. This notion that market prices are not endogenous to the market itself ties into a number of themes that I find myself always coming back to. First, I love the old quote from Passport Capital founder John Burbank, who once with remarkable efficiency said that, quote, price is a liar. I've always loved this and pointed to the low 20 basis point pricing of CDS on large banks like Morgan Stanley. In early 2007, even as the U.S. banking system had become dangerously leveraged with toxic assets as a great example of when price was lying. Financial assets, and especially volatility, can be subject to highly reflexive cycles of low and high vol. Rick Bookstabber did a great job describing a cornerstone of the risk philosophy of George Soros. The idea that we are not only in the market, but we are the market. And that when we see things and take action based on that, that itself changes the market, which in turn changes us. There's a related theme here that market prices invite trades that lead to results, sometimes vastly successful and sometimes resulting in giant losses. Winning trades get bigger. There's a great quote from Ben Franklin on compound interest. He says, quote, money makes money and the money money makes makes more money. The modern day version of that is the carry trade. What's a carry trade? It's one that has a high probability of success, but a negatively skewed profit distribution. The old adage that short vol traders eat like birds, but shit like elephants is an apt description of the risk profile of a carry trade. When these trades work, the profits get stuffed back into the same system that rewarded them for doing so the last time. The margin of safety can erode in the process. We fail to appreciate that the ground is shifting beneath us because prices convince us otherwise. Prices play a huge role in telling us what to believe. But as Burbank says, prices lie. Our intoxication with prices leaves us vulnerable to missing the forest for the trees. Ben Melkman put it this way. What also often happens in big paradigm shifts is people are willing to sell you vol because you've been in one state of the world when you're going into a completely different state of the world. So a great example would be, again, major political events. So... If you look at what happened, for example, in 2012 into 13 in Japanese yen in Nikkei, Japan had done nothing for years, for the three or four years certainly until the crisis falls at the lows 
all the skewtival was to yen appreciation or Nikkei weakness. With regard to regime changes, none has been more profound for the market than COVID-19. The massive economic sudden stop, let's call that acronym MESS, created a burst of volatility that wrecked havoc on asset prices, required the government to rescue the risk-free asset itself, and led to the rare bipartisan government support in the many trillions of dollars. Trades that were short vol, especially in equities, were carried out. A prominent area of investigation on the Alpha Exchange has been the March 20 market crisis. Over my 30-year tenure in markets, there's no equivalent to three successive days when the S&P 500 moved down 9%, up 9%, and then down 12%. Clearly, the market was reacting to the almost unthinkable implications for the economy and corporate profits. So the market absolutely should have been very volatile. But there's also the setup going into March. Was there positioning that was especially vulnerable to a shock? Here's what Ben Eifert, the founder and CIO of QVR Advisors, said. You just saw every manner of toxic tail risk, flavors of different short variance types of trades, both really short term, a lot of effectively caps on variance or call options on variance that banks were buying from hedge funds. Lots of long term S&P variants, either outright or spread against other products, skew locks hedge funds selling banks, variance conditional on a large down move in the equity market versus buying variance conditional on an up move on the equity market. It's not a question that has a direct answer, but trying to disentangle the extent to which the market was reacting to the significance of what it had learned and the extent to which the market trades themselves served as an accelerant to all that volatility is a useful exercise. Through my discussions with many in markets, I think this is a case of both. There were trades that underwrote deep tails. For example, the AIMCO trade that sold an uncapped variant swap versus being long a capped variant swap. You're paid very little for this. And in this case, with the S&P realizing 80 for a full month, the losses become enormous. This is short convexity at its most dangerous. Harley Bassman, the managing partner at Simplify Asset Management, said this. Convexity is always lurking near the scene of the crime. People are not built very well to handle negative convexity. Most of the big market-shaking events occur when people, investors, the market positions itself short convexity. We will never fully disentangle these, but the VIX breaking its prior high and getting to 83 is some toxic combination of the new state of the world and the positions that were in place when that new state of the world was discovered. The last 20 points in the VIX could have been vulnerable positions being forcibly unwound at any price in a market whose liquidity profile was already deeply compromised. That's how OTC derivative markets especially can break down. There's a great deal of analysis these days on the vol profile of the market. I take issue with a lot of it, not on its economic underpinnings or logic. We're drawn to uncovering the hedging impact of vol traders because these hedges are done with no attention to price. These are mechanical flows that could conceivably mute or accelerate price moves. The underlying idea is a good one, but the analysis is woefully short on the degree of information we have versus what we truly need. To review, when a vol trader is short vol, his or her hedging activity can serve to accelerate moves already in an asset. The vol trader short a put must sell into a falling market in order to get back to delta neutral. Put enough short vol exposure on the books of those who do this kind of delta hedging, and you might see large moves in the underlying. Again, as Harley Bassman told us, convexity is often at the scene of the crime. The logic is sound, but the exercise needs much more data in order to have teeth. With this in mind, a few of the Alpha Exchange guests have been experts on the vast market for complex derivatives embedded in retail structured products. As Natalie Guillot, the head of sales for the Americas at BNP told us, dealers actually find themselves getting longer vol as markets fall. She said this. So when the dealer actually issued the autocollable note, they are long vega and they become longer vega as the underlying falls. So until we hit what I mentioned earlier, the peak vega, the dealers have to sell volatility to hedge their vega exposure. However, as we approach that peak vega and the underlyings continue to fall towards the knocking barrier, the vega profile may start to change and in fact may begin to decline. 
So this may cause the dealers to who was previously selling options to hedge their Vega exposure to now start buying back volatility, which can actually put pressure, upward pressure, on the volatility market. The vol profile of those who trade vol is really complex. There are surely listed options in lit markets that we can observe. But even understanding who is long and short and how they are hedging is impossible. In some ways, we are all delta hedgers. An overrider who sells an upside call against a long stock position may be buying shares as the stock rallies so as not to be taken out of his or her full position. A dealer who is short SPX vol might be long a basket of single stock vol as part of a dispersion trade. That's a very different hedging protocol than being outright short vol. Adding to this, there are VIX futures and options, both listed in OTC. There are all sorts of third-generation risk premia products that either sell or consume convexity. And this structured products market is huge as well. Here's what Andrew Scott, the head of investor relations at Bach Options, said. That is the one byproduct of these retail structured products, that the monetization of that product is selling volatility. So this is the primary reason why Korea surpassed Japan as the largest retail structured product player globally. However, we take a snapshot and just look at the current universe of outstanding retail structured products for the first time in history, according to the team at Bank of America, U.S. retail clients actually account for the largest single country share. So it is no longer an Asian phenomenon. Of all the aspects of the market crisis that COVID wrought, it was the crash in the U.S. government bond market that fascinated me most. I recall speaking to folks absolutely in the know in the days preceding mid-March of 2020, and the message was simply that the U.S. Treasury market and the investors that comprised the market was out of the incremental dollar needed to buy an additional bond. There was nothing left. Here's what Josh Younger, the head of fixed income derivative strategy at J.P. Morgan, said. Treasuries, of course, are the highest quality assets these institutions could hold. They were considered interchangeable with cash in lots of different ways. The problem was, how do you turn a treasury bond into cash? And you do that by selling it, but you don't sell it directly to another end user. And especially if there aren't necessarily other end users, because there's a broader draw, a broader desire to build liquidity as opposed to hold it in term securities. And so you go to your dealer and you say, I'd like to sell this bond. And they're presumably going to be the buyer to the sellers. The problem that creates is most of the flow is intermediated by other banks. And so banks facing liquidity squeeze were unable to effectively monetize their treasuries because those treasury bonds were being sold to other banks. And that implicates the too big to fail regulation. We might categorize risk off events by their causality and in the correlation of stock and bond prices. In the classic event, risk assets get hit and duration rallies on a flight to safety. In the taper risk-off, it is higher yields in the risk-free bond market that catalyzes the sell-off in risk assets. And in the third, which I call liquidation, stock and bond prices crash together. Peter Van Duyewert, the head of portfolio solutions at Man Group, said this. When you take the 60-40 portfolio and you keep the 40 relatively stable, you can survive a little bit of panic in equities. But I think what we saw in March where bonds started to sell off aggressively, taking down gold and taking down almost every defensive asset, including big move in dollar yen, the things you had relied upon working suddenly stopped working. So the Fed did all of us a big favor by quickly stabilizing the 40 side of everyone's 60-40 portfolios. It allowed you to get out of this panic liquidity universe where everyone was selling every asset to raise cash. The speed of the 2020 crisis was really without precedent, and that includes 2008. With some irony, the GFC and the rescue facilities conjured up as it was unfolding likely prevented the 2020 asset price crackup from becoming even worse. The Fed drew upon the GFC playbook, implementing the same alphabet soup we remember from the crisis, including the primary dealer credit facility, the commercial paper funding facility, the money market mutual funding facility, term asset-backed securities loan facility, and others. Of course, the Fed did QE as well, this time adding both CMBS, certain credit ETFs, and corporate bonds to its purchases. About this crisis period, Colin Lancaster, global head of macro at Schoenfeld Advisors, said this. What was really amazing about that period is that an episode that you know may have taken 14 or, or so months to, to play out in ordinary course occurred in three weeks. 
So every day was a new record-setting day in terms of how products were gapping against one another and how vol was spiking. And that was just such a fascinating period to me because it was just so unprecedented in terms of how violent and how quick that it all took place. Clearly, the Fed was aiming to restore market functioning and liquidity. Over the summer of 2020, former head of the Reserve Bank of India, Raghuram Rajan, was a guest on our podcast. I asked Raghu to reflect back on the Fed's intervention. He said this. In some ways, the Fed bought us time. Question is, having done that, at what point do you stop? And of course, what kinds of incentives have you created for the future? And both are extremely important. You don't want a full-fledged panic in financial markets. But over time, you have to ask, okay, I've stabilized, but is stabilization the right thing? So as soon as you ask the question of about stability versus change, you have to ask, am I doing too much? Clearly, a shock of this magnitude is going to require the kitchen sink approach. It's easy to be an armchair quarterback in judging the Fed. Better instead to focus attention on the state of the world post-COVID. What set of prices, both on an absolute and relative basis, emerged in the aftermath? Incredibly, by June of 2020, the Triple Q had recovered from the drawdown. And for all of 2020, this index returned an astounding 48%. In early 2021, Erin Brown, the head of asset allocation at PIMCO, shared her views on the go-forward prospects for tech. With respect to sectors like tech, which are long-duration assets, you know, I think you have to separate tech, spec tech versus sort of higher quality tech investments. But I would not be long, long duration equities right now, you know, particularly spec tech. I think that, you know, as duration continues to sell off, clearly those equities that are more exposed or more long duration are going to underperform. And, you know, certainly given the starting point for valuations for those assets, they, you know, have room for potential further downside, which can be pretty considerable for certain names. The duration profile of the stock market became an important post-COVID theme. In 2020, alongside the remarkable returns for tech, the TLT also returned 18%. It's nirvana for a portfolio that combines stocks and bonds. But many were skeptical. Conversations with Alpha Exchange guests focus a good deal on the correlation regime change that was afoot between stocks and bonds. David Anderson, co-founder of Convexitas, offered this. We're not really here to make a call on the correlation of, of stocks and bonds, but it seems to us like the risk is certainly pointed in the direction of it being a real problem, portfolio construction standpoint. And as we look across the more extreme months, we've had a bunch of them recently that would tend to corroborate that. So this is a risk you ought to think of and that you ought to start to consider. The risk that your bonds are not going to be the ballast that you kind of learn that they would be as an undergraduate. While timing is everything, light exotic trades embedding a stock bond correlation assumption capitalized on one of the most severe drawdowns in the 60-40 portfolio on record. Identifying such trade, Puneet Kohli of Hoop shared this. You want to be short some equity, short some bonds and long volatility as central banks pull the liquidity out of the market. You can combine all three of those calls into one structure, which is an equity put contingent on rates higher. So that gets you short equities, it gets you short bonds, and it also is long vol. Now, it plays the correlation between equities and fixed income. Post-March of 2020, so much has happened in markets. Front-month crude futures plummeted to a momentary but unthinkable price of negative 35 in April of 2020. In 2022, they reached 120. The German tenure yielded as low as negative 85 basis points in 2020, and most recently yielded north of 2%. Inflation, dormant for decades in the U.S., is suddenly a huge thing. Year-over-year -year CPI is the highest in 40 years. And on what might become known as Black Friday, September 23rd of 2022, the U.K. bond market and British Pound simultaneously experienced what many might consider a crash event, buckling to an unsustainable mix of inflation, fiscal policy, and the market's demand for risk premium. Market prices are a lot of things. They're driven by valuation, by expectations, and increasingly 
by flows in which a stampede of buying or selling generates shocking volatility. In the process, prices can become weaponized. They force investors into action, both in playing offense and defense. With this in mind, who can forget the meme stock risk event? In one week, in late Jan 2021, GameStop went from 40 to 350. Its one-month implied volatility went to 540%. The behavior of GME and other stocks like AMC in early 2021 introduced a new convexity and vulnerability in markets, the upcrash. Here's what Ben Eifert shared on this unique event. The first thing that you can say with a lot of confidence is that certainly in any smaller cap, less liquid single stock equity, you have to think that the right tail just stays relatively bid, that there's much more smile than there might have been a year or two ago relative to just pure skew, right? Because the, I think this has, this kind of move has reminded people that actually, if anything, if you were to compare a long equity position and a short equity position, right, a long equity position is somehow inherently long gamma and a short equity position is somehow inherently short gamma. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. For the month of January, 2021, GME realized a shocking 611% on the subset of days when the stock increased. The hedging implications that result from this asset price behavior are significant. Positively reinforcing vol and price spirals are dangerous. One of my favorite quotes is from George Soros, who once said, quote, when I see a bubble forming, I rush in to buy it. Here, we see the playbook from the Wall Street Bets community on Reddit drawn directly from that of one of history's most talented investors. The GME event, as I call it, culminated with the VIX reaching 37 on January 27th of 2021. Incredibly, on this same day, 10-day realized vol in the S&P was half this level. This giant premium of implied to realized illustrated how much demand there was for insurance at any price. In a February 2021 interview, Thomas Petterfee, the founder of Interactive Brokers, said this, quote, we have come dangerously close to the collapse of the entire system, and the public seems to be completely unaware of this, including Congress and the regulators. Petterfee pointed to the potential that exercised call options could have further generated a squeeze in GME that lifted the stock much higher in price. These tail events are of great consequence in markets. They occur with far greater frequency and in far greater magnitude than any of our models anticipate. There's an old saying from Mark Zuckerberg, who in describing the hard charging innovation that characterizes companies like Facebook in Silicon Valley, he said, quote, move fast and break things. In markets, we can modify this to move fast and things break. The thing about tail events is that they set in motion unanticipated outcomes. We've seen this so many times. Warren Buffett's old saying, only when the tide goes out, do you discover who's been swimming naked is applicable here. Our markets and the exposures within them are linked, sometimes in non-obvious ways. Move fast and things break is not just a traditional finance thing. We saw it recently in crypto. While the market for digital assets is not a main focus of the Alpha Exchange, I have enjoyed having guests like Ari Pine, co-founder of Digital Gamma, Rich Rosenblum, president and co-founder of GSR Markets, and Bill Birmingham, chief investment officer of the Osprey Funds as podcast guests. In reflecting back on the massive unwinding crypto in 2022 and the nature of the implosion of the Terra Luna system, Bill Birmingham said this. The nature of decentralized finance and the ability to create recursive leverage inside of the system. And that basically means, very simply, is that you are allowed to borrow in crypto as long as you post collateral, in many cases over collateral. But then you are also able to use what you borrow in some cases or use what you generate from your borrowing to create collateral for another loan. And then it just becomes recursive in the sense that you just create more and more loans until you've fully maxed out your collateral ability. So what we saw over these last few months were players essentially using that setup to create very large leverage and highly concentrated positions in the system. And when the overall macro bubble burst and liquidity started to be drained from the system, then all of these recursive loans fell back on each other. And that's what exacerbated the volatility and certainly pushed the drawdown to these extreme levels that we've seen so far. I found Bill's assessment here particularly fascinating. 
The idea of Bitcoin serving as this, quote, bearer asset that permitted any creditor to treat it as good collateral, no questions asked, is very different from what we do in traditional finance. The first question a bank will ask a mortgage applicant is, where did you get the money for the down payment? Not so in crypto, and thus the recursive leverage that Bill referred to. Aspects of traditional finance may be slow, and some of the payment systems may be antiquated. While the human tendency is to embrace technology and strive for greater efficiency, it's not obvious how to get there. Some ideas, like the algo stablecoin, are just patently bad. The fact that they even got up and running speaks against the power of reflexivity. Someone, let's just assume it was Mark Twain, once said, price is the only fundamental. In the case of Terra Luna, none of this construct would have been conceivable without the billions of dollars of paper wealth that investors assigned the project. Over the first 100 episodes of the Alpha Exchange, markets and the world have experienced a tremendous amount of change. Above all, the world's central banks have gone from managing their inflation mandates from below to fighting from well above target. This has had profound impact on correlations, on the efficacy of the 60-40 portfolio, on liquidity, on asset class performance, and of course, on market volatility. Markets are complex and humbling. My hope in hosting this podcast has been to play some role in contributing to our collective understanding of risk. Again, I am sincerely grateful to our guests for sharing their expertise and perspectives, and I thank you for listening. I hope you have enjoyed our retrospective episode number 100 of the Alpha Exchange. Please keep the feedback coming, and I wish you the best. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.